الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على المبعوث رحمة للعالمين الشاهد البشير الداعي إليك بإذنك السراج المنير أما بعد قال الله تبارك وتعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد وإنك لعلى خلق عظيم وابن عباس رضي الله عنه قال كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أجود الناس وكان أجود ما يكون في شهر رمضان حتى ينسلخ فيأتيه جبريل فيعرض عليه القرآن فإذا لقيه جبريل كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أجود بالخير من الريح المرسلة يا أجود الأجواد يا من له بين النبيين المقام الأغر يا أجود الأجواد يا من له بين النبيين المقام الأغر الجود بيت أنت مالكه مفتاحه في الكف منك استقر فجد بما أرجوه يا بغيتي فإن كل الجود منك ظهر My dear respected brothers and sisters and our ulama ikiram Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Just to give you an understanding of how difficult a task the Prophet ﷺ faced when he was granted his prophecy at the age of 40 and the geopolitical situation at the time and how the choice was the most appropriate choice that was made through the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let's start with a look at the map. Now, you don't have a map in front of you, but when you go home, just, just look at a map of the world in, in the way it currently seems. Uh, in the older maps of uh, the earliest cartographers like Idrisi, I mean, some, some of the earliest maps were actually developed by Muslims. Uh, one of them was Idrisi. So north was south and south was north. Everything was actually the other way around, which is very interesting. However, since the last several decades, the map is the way we generally see it. But according to the way the map is seen today, look at where the Arabian Peninsula lies, in which Saudi Arabia, uh, current day, which is called Saudi Arabia in its uh, you know, current name. But the Arabian Peninsula is very interesting. Out of the entire, all of the continents, the way you see them, Saudi Arabia will fall, or the Arabian Peninsula will fall right in the middle. It's exposed to sea on three sides, despite being in the middle. It's exposed to three sides, to the sea, to water, and it only is attached to the land on one side. And what's very interesting, if you look at it carefully, is that it actually appears like the heart is suspended in the middle of the human body. So the most apt place that was chosen, and this is not just kind of some kind of emotional claim we're making. When you go home, just tap in Saudi Arabia onto Google Maps, and when the, when the world comes up, you'll actually see where it's placed. It's so perfect, it's just like literally a suspended heart in the middle of all of these continents. Now, that's the place where the Prophet ﷺ was chosen. Now, that's not the only thing. The people who lived there, among which Rasulullah was sent to, were not normal people. They had certain characteristics, habits, and customs, which made a lot of people avoid them. 
even the most the greatest of the powers of the day the Persian and the Roman empires which essentially surrounded them from three sides uh, south was Yemen there was the the, the Christian influence there of the uh, in Yemen because Yemen had a system whereas Saudi Arabia didn't have uh, Arabia didn't have a system but yet Yemen the southern point of the Arabian Peninsula had a system uh, and likewise you had then the Persians on your right right to the east and then to the north and beyond in Sham, in the Levant, you had, you had the Romans. But none of these people wanted to do anything or have anything to do with these people. Despite the fact that these were all conquering, conquering um, empires, they for some reason just avoided the Arabs among which Rasulullah came. So they had certain characteristics and certain habits and customs which were considered very violent, which were considered extremely tyrannical and rebellious. So nobody was interested in them, plus the way the land was and their surrounding areas were. However, there was another side to it. The qualities that they had made it actually the perfect place for the last Prophet Muhammad Rasul Akram Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to come to. So let's just look at that a bit. First and foremost, if you look at the way the people were, they were considered an extremely uncivilized people. They had no law and order. It was, as they say, you know, whoever had the stick, whoever had the sword, they would win. And there were constant reprisal attacks. There were constant infighting. And there, there were um, constant takeovers of one tribe of the next. And then enslaving the people. And this is the way this system worked. Everything was decided by the sword. So extremely uncivilized in that regard. To such a degree, I mean, as you've uh, probably heard of and uh, many times before, burying their daughters alive. So life didn't mean much for them in that sense. Number two, the land was a full desert. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, mentions in the Quran, zar'in, right? A place with no vegetation. This is the situation of Makkah. Mountains and just miles and miles of desert. Miles and miles of desert. Number three, the nature of the people was such that they really stuck together with their tribe. Tribal affiliations were so strong that individualism would never have worked there. It was such a situation where if they were your friend, they were your friend until death. And if they were your foe, then they would be your enemy regardless of what you did for them. They were very unlike the camel. A friend of mine, so on one occasion, he actually described somebody as a camel i said why do you do that for it's not a very nice description he said i'll tell you why you can't trust this you can't trust this guy i said what's that got to do with a camel he says you know a camel when you want it to sit you have to be very careful whether you're on this side or that side because it can sit on any side and if you're there you'll be crushed so you can't trust it that it's only going to sit on this side or this side you seem to know what i'm talking about right so that's the nature of a camel. You have to be very careful. It's your camel, but you don't know where it's going to sit. And it might sit on you. So you have to be very careful. So that was his description. Now these people were such that they were very particular. They were your friend or foe, and they would fight tooth and nail until death for you. So that was another, that was another, that was another issue. That was another issue for them. And number three, Sorry, that was, that was actually number three. So they were very extreme. But these were the most perfect people 
to send a prophet to. Why? Because they had boldness about them. Extreme independence. They felt extremely superior within themselves. They didn't care about anybody. They had a lot of boldness about them, this attitude. And that was extremely important because if they, if they were convinced, then they would be bold enough to take this deen throughout the world. These were a, a people devoid of civilization. If they became civilized, then with the boldness and this attitude they had, they'd be able to take it around the world. Number two, another advantage was that they were well suited for struggle. There was less water. There was less water. And I mean, for, uh, you know, there was less water, extreme heat. So they were used to extreme heat. No ACs. I mean, it's all been messed up now. Because there's, they live in AC. A friend of mine who's actually from India, he is working in Emirates and he's got all white hair and he's probably younger than me. And he said it's the AC, working inside, inside with the AC. That was his theory. Wallahu alam. I'm sure he's got some parishani. Allah usko dur kare. But that, that's what his idea was. In those days, there's no AC. You're talking about complete heat of uh, excruciating um, 50 degrees, etc. No, hardly any water. Economic situation wasn't very easy. They had to fight for survival in many cases. Perfect. If these people went to other areas, they'd have no problem in surviving. Whereas if you had people who are living in pomp and glory and comfort and luxury, then these people would find it difficult in other areas. So that's the second characteristic that this place was chosen for. And number three, which was extremely amazing, is that despite this uncivilized nature, despite this tyranny among them and despite their rebellion they were extremely proud of one thing which is that they call themselves the Arab and that means those who are able to articulate themselves articulate their feelings in the most eloquent and apt and appropriate and refined refined way this is the ability that they had and they knew it. And that's why anybody else that didn't speak their language, they called them the ajam. And the word ujum refers to somebody who is unable to articulate themselves. Somebody who can't speak properly. Somebody who can't explain something. Who doesn't have the ability to make you comprehend what they mean, what they say inside. They have to use 10 sentences. Whereas a person who's able to articulate, he'll be able to say it in a single sentence and give you the full meaning. And that word and that construction, be, that composition be full of and rich with many, many meanings. So these people had that ability and that was what they would vie with each other in. So despite this uncivilized nature of their lifestyle, when it came to speaking, they used to look down upon everybody else. That those people, they don't know how to articulate themselves. We know how to articulate ourselves. Now, such a person is going to be the greatest da'i. Because his words, words are extremely powerful. Words have a power. The language that you use, the vocabulary that you're able to utilize and employ and invoke, and the construction. So it's extremely balig, extremely efficient. So these were the most perfectly suited people who were used to rough conditions, extremely bold and extremely articulate. If these people to be won over, then that would the whole world would, and this is exactly, so we're retrospectively analyzing this. But this is exactly the case. This is exactly what happened. Now, the other thing is that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he had to win these people over. How does he win these people over? Now, whenever you 
this is the job of anybody that takes on something of a leadership position. How do you win people over? Whether it's the president or the prime minister of a country, or whether it's the imam of a masjid, or whether it's a person who is just trying to bring his family together. What he's going to have to look at all of these different things. Now, one of the most amazing things that the Prophet ﷺ did, which is a later aspect, I'm just going to fast forward a bit. When the Prophet ﷺ moved to Medina Munawwara, there are three things that he immediately did. And I think for us Imams, this is a really helpful analysis. This is what he did when he moved to Medina Munawwara. So I'm just going off on a tangent. He said, first and foremost, what he did was, he did Mu'akhat. What that means is he created brotherliness between the people. What you had is a situation where the people of Makkah, the Muhajireen, had left everything, had left all their wealth, their places, their abode, etc., and had come and moved to Medina Munawwara. The Ansar, the Aus and Khazraj, who were originally from the same family of Qayla, Banu Qayla, they were they just become two uh, uh, they just become two branches later on the Aus and Khazraj, although they went to a common mother, right? That's why they were called the Banu Qayla. Now they were. In, they, they, they had great disharmony between them and they had a lot of conflict. Now that had been resolved to a certain degree by Rasulullah But then you had this new group, the Muhajireen come in and they were going to vie for space, place. They were going to vie for the resources. So the Prophet created Mu'akhat, brotherly love, brotherly uh, relationships. And thus he was able to build those bridges like that. So that's the first thing he did, create unity. Number two, he got everybody involved in a common project. So every, you see, the idle mind is the workshop of the devil. So now you had this new place. So he said, we're going to build a masjid, Masjid al-Nabawi sallallahu alayhi wa So he had everybody involved in the construction and development of this masjid. So everybody had something to do. There was an activity they were all involved in. So that's why the less time for bickering and less time for problems. You've got a common goal and there's an exercise that you need to do. Number three, there were the Jewish tribes that lived around. The three tribes that lived around. So he created, he built bridges with them and a defense system, a security system. We'll help you and you will assist us if there's a, an enemy that is to attack Medina Munawwara. So these are the three things he did. He did Muakhat and then he made a common project for everybody to be involved in. And number three, he built bridges with those that could be potential enemies so that you would be together. And this is something an Imam can also do when he comes into a community. And this is also what you can do within your own families when there's a problem. This is something we can all benefit from. However, let's go back to Makkah Mukarramah. The Prophet ﷺ has, has just been given and bestowed with the office of messengership, with prophecy. How does he go about winning these people for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Of course, it needed many, many different qualities, which uh, in Sira programs uh, are made clear, uh, are expounded upon, are explored and surveyed in the different ways that they do. Today, we're going to be just looking at some of those qualities. But the first thing is that to bring everybody together, what would you do? What do politicians do? What do they rally people on. So there were many possible rally points that uh, the Prophet ﷺ could have used. Number one was on uh, economic welfare. There was a shortage of food, of, uh, of supplies. There was a shortage of water. So he could have rallied everybody 
with a with, with uh, uh, behind the whole aspect of getting together for economical purposes that hey we should stop doing this we should get together so that you know we could have better economic well-being he didn't do that though that would have been easy for him to do because it's a common trait and a common demand that they would have all uh, they would have all appreciated number two the other possibility another possibility was security there was no security there in the morning, you'd, you'd, before you woke up for, you know, in the morning at dawn, you'd be attacked. That was the best time for attack. So there was no security. You would be caught somewhere and made a slave and taken away. So he could have said, look, this is something that's plaguing our nations, our tribes. We need to bring people together so that we have at least some kind of security law. So he could have rallied everybody together on security. That was another way to unify the hearts, to unify the minds actually, and bring them together. But he didn't do that either. He was going to do something which would sort all of these issues out. These were, these were small things in the grand idea that he had and the task that he had been given. These were all small issues that would all be dealt with if the biggest issue would be dealt with. The third possibility was to bring them together on non nothing else but the language. If none of the other two, then language, look, we speak the same thing. And then to rally on that point that we all speak alike. We all have the same language. We need, to be, we need to come together in this regard against possible enemies or we need to do more in this regard. But again, that was not something, that was not the banner that he used either. So what did he use? He went straight for the biggest issue, which is to take people away from their servitude of the people to the servitude of the Lord of the people. That's exactly what he did. And that's why his, his, whole, his whole ambition his whole call, his rally point was on Tawheed right from the beginning. First it was done as you know, discreetly, then the, then he was, uh, the Prophet ﷺ was ordered, فَاصْدَعْ بِمَا تُؤْمَرْ That now do it aloud. And thus he started with his own family. Absolute boldness, with no fear whatsoever. Despite his compassion itself. You don't generally expect uh, you know, people who have very soft hearts to be able to stand up to such things. But this is exactly what he did. He was an amazing uh, individual that comprised of the best of qualities, even though they seem to be opposed to each other. It's an amazing, just an amazing individual that uh, uh, Mawlana Muhammad uh, Sahib has already described, you know, the, the, the formation and the makeup. And uh, that, that's essentially what is being played out here in, in this, um, you know, in this talk here. So... Ya ayyuhan nas, qulu la ilaha illallah, tuflihun. O people, just say la ilaha illallah. There is no God except Allah. All of these intermediaries in between. These what you say are divine agents. They used to say that these were divine agents. We don't believe in them. We only worship them because liuqarribuna ilallahi zulfa. They're going to make us closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They act as intermediaries. You don't need them. There's direct contact with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That was his call for Tawheed and the oneness, divine unity, divine oneness. And that's why, to cut a long story short, we know, we know the seerah. The Prophet ﷺ made that call. He went through great difficulties. He had to, he was, they were persecuted. His followers were persecuted. They had to leave Makkah Mukarramah for Medina Munawwara. But then the, the day that they re-entered Makkah Mukarramah, they entered without bloodshed. The women were cowering in the homes that when they know that they have aggressed against somebody, 
when they have violated other people and those same people according to the tradition of the time when they would come back they would lay waste to that area so these women are now cowering because the men they'd be killed but the women would be raped the women would be abused and that's a major that's something that's been major all the way through a major issue and a major concern so they were cowering in the homes and waiting for the carnage to begin and nothing of the sort happens in fact what they hear is totally the opposite and the Prophet's well-chosen words he says anybody who enters the home of Abu Sufyan he is safe if Abu Sufyan's home is safe then everybody else is safe and thus Hind the wife of Abu Sufyan comes out and she is the same one who had abused Hamza radiallahu an. And she comes and enters into Islam and she is able to now say that you were once, he says to the Prophet that you were once the most hated and abhorred home and household in according to me and today you become the most beloved. So that's, that's the Prophet's story. Now, in order to do this, he had amazing qualities. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had placed into him every great quality there was. And subhanallah, when Aisha radiallahu anha was questioned about him, it's, it's famous. The response she gave was, خُلُقُهُ الْقُرْآنِ His akhlaq are the Qur'an. However, the most amazing, this is actually her adab with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that that's what she said. Really what she meant was, that he had the akhlaq of Allah. But you can't say that because there's a big distinction between Allah and a creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even though it be Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa So the way she could translate this was to say, خُلُقُهُ Quran. Quran is the words of Allah. But the akhlaq were of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Look at the beautiful names and you'll find them in Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa at his level, not on divine level. There's nothing that is like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He is divine. He's beyond. He's transcendent. But this was her way of expressing this idea. And out of all of these, of course, we have no time to discuss all of these qualities. And when people say that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is not mentioned in the Quran by name, Musa alayhi is mentioned this many times, Isa is mentioned 25 times, Ibrahim is mentioned so many times. You see, when you mention an individual, and on, as opposed to that, you mention aspects of an individual, that's a whole different thing. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the Prophet in many different ways. We reveal the Quran onto your heart. He speaks about the Prophet's heart. He doesn't have to mention the Prophet. He's speaking about a the heart of the Prophet. He's speaking about the Prophet's nafs. Uh, he says, uh, Number of things. He doesn't have to say Muhammad. This is all actually a translation of Muhammad. What does Muhammad mean? The one who has been praised the most. Who, who is entitled to the greatest praise. Allah is actually praising him in, by using these alternate means of addressing him. To say, you are the Muhammad. And at the same time, he is Ahmad. 
And Ahmad means the one who has the ability to praise Allah more than anybody else. So Ajib with that one name, and this is the beauty of the Arabic language, that Ahmad means the one who's able to praise Allah the most, and Muhammad is the one who's been praised the most, both in the heavens, the superlunary world, and in the sublunary world on the earth. That's the Prophet Just to give you an idea of how powerful the Arabic language is, love is an extremely important idea. It's something we all experience. Now in English, what are the words for love? Does anybody know anything other than love for love? Except the, you know, the, the, the vulgar words. Any decent words? I mean, there may be, but generally people don't. Whereas in Arabic, the stages of love, every stage of love has a term. So for example, the first stage of love is called Hawa. Where there's an inclination towards something, your heart feels something towards something. An idea, a person, an individual, or whatever it may be. Or to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Hawa. Hawa nafs. Number two, when it becomes a bit stronger, it's called ilaqa. Ilaqa. The nafs, because the word uluq means to stick to something. So now it's getting stickier. It's a bit stronger than just hawa. Number three, it's called ishq. Everybody knows ishq. Translate ishq into Arabic, into English. So ishq is the third stage of love. And number four is called shagaf. Shagaf is stronger than ishq. Because this means balagh al-hub shigaf al-qalb. Shigaf, this is talking about the outer skin of the heart. So the love has reached all the way there. It's just one more stage left, which is called shi'af. So this is in Arabic. And the poets use this in amazing ways. And those who are articulate in the language use this in amazing ways. And for many, many things it's like that. There's a, an amazing philologist, a lexicographer called uh, Al-Asma'i, Abdul Malik ibn Qurayb, also a hadith scholar. He says, uh, he wrote a book on the shat, shat, bakri, the goat. And he mentions about 60 or 70 names for, in Arabic, how they, 60 or 70 names or words, vocabulary for just the goat. So he was in the early time when they were developing and the, 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 the philology of the Arabic language. The dictionaries were being developed and so on. So this is one of the books he wrote. Among a number of others, he wrote another book on the faras, on the horse, and the different words that relate to every aspect of the horse. Just amazing language. Unfortunately, we are bereft of this language. We read Quran for 20 years. And we never understand it. How would it be if we can, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can open this up so that we can actually understand His words, His superior words directly? And you know, if you have a desire, Allah will fulfill it. But we don't even have the dream to know Arabic. We just think it's unattainable. And this is what they call our, uh, this is what you call. Um, Low himma, high himma, high aspiration. Is it too difficult for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to teach you Arabic? Is it beyond him? Allah says, I am with my servant as he thinks of me. Once you have that as your dream, even if you think it's unattainable, you will do something and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you tawfiq. At least start with the last 10 surahs. 
and Surah Al-Fatiha, which the Imam reads most of the time. So at least you understand that. And you will see how the beauty of it is. The Imam is doing wonderful qiraat, and unfortunately now masajid nobody cries, unless it's a good tune. Right? Everybody's into Arabic nasheeds today, because it's a good tune. They don't understand what it is. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enlighten us in that regard. Now, I'm just going to go through one hadith, just looking at one aspect of the Prophet's character, which was extremely important in his da'wah work and in winning these people over. And this is the hadith that I mentioned in the beginning from Ibn Abbas, which Imam Tirmidhi has uh, transmitted in his Shama'il. He says that Kana Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam nas. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was the most generous of people. Most open-hearted, most open-handed, most benevolent, most able to give. Ajwadan nas. Now, do not think this is just referring to money, because today we equate generosity with money. We equate the health of a country with how people can spend. It's so ridiculous. It is so ridiculous. The health of a, of a country and a political system is determined by how many people go out at Christmas time and other times and how much money is made in the high street. The Prophet nas. he was the, absolutely the most sahi and generous and open-hearted individual. And then Ibn Abbas anhu carries on to say, In fact, he was most generous out of all of his states, he was most generous during the month of Ramadan, until Ramadan finished. Abundant generosity in Ramadan. Now, once you hear that, you'll start thinking there has to be a reason for that. Ramadan is a special time. So there's something affecting him, which is making him even more generous. You don't just become generous for no reason, just like that. Something's affecting him. And now, then he says, فَيَأْتِيهِ جِبْرِيلِ فَيَعْرِذْ عَلِيهِ الْقُرْآنِ Jibreel used to come to him and then they used to present the Quran to each other. So whatever Quran had been revealed until now, because the Quran was revealed over the course of 23 years. So whatever Quran had revealed up to there, the Prophet Jibreel would do his door as we call it, would review it so that it's all, it's refreshed and it's put together. So then he, then Ibn Abbas says, فَإِذَا لَقِيَهُ Jibreel. When Jibreel used to be with him, when he used to meet him, when he used to have these special high ranking meetings with Jibreel alayhi salam kana rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ajwada bil khayri min al-reeh al-mursala when he would meet with Jibreel alayhi salam now he would be so generous with all types of goodness and excellence and benevolence that he would be more generous than and this is Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu's description than the, the wind which is sent so like the wind it just reaches everything you can hear it, it's everywhere. And it's spread, it doesn't discriminate of you only being in one place. But it's everywhere, it's universal, and it affects everything. The Prophet's Jud was like that. Now we're talking about Ibn Abbas. He's not somebody who's very crude in his descriptions. He's very eloquent in his articulation. He knows what he's talking about. Imagine what's in his head, in his heart, and what he's trying to say by this expression. Whenever somebody makes an expression, it's not, you know, people analyze this. But think of the person making that expression. 
And what is that person saying? What must be going through his mind? What must be in front of him that he's having to say this way, that he's like the wind? That's probably the only thing he could have thought of at that time. That the Prophet's Jude was not about money, giving person, you know, this much here, this much there. It was in everything. Now, let us analyze the Prophet's Jude. Some examples, some examples of, of his generosity. Safan ibn Umayyah. The Prophet gave Safan ibn Umayyah so much herd, so many goats and sheep from some booty that had come that it literally filled a valley between two mountains. It was such an abundant amount that Safan ibn Umayyah says, A'ta, he says, Ara Muhammadan yu'ti ata'a man la yakhshal faqr. I see Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam giving such a gift uh, this gift of a person who has no fear for poverty again this is a non-muslim speaking at the time right but he is with his articulation he's an arab this is his articulation he says i see him giving like a person who's got no fear for poverty he gives and subhanallah the prophet himself said he said I am just the distributor. Allah is the giver. And subhanallah, Allah will give more to those who distribute. Why? Imagine you have a charity and you need to get rid of money. You need to go and help people. And you've got a few people that work for you. There's one person who's really fast. He can identify people who need help. He goes and he gives. He comes back for more. Right? And then you've got others who are like, you know, not, not as generous in that sense. They're like, no, no, no. This person, now you're going to be more happy with the person who's giving because that's why you want to give. You want to give out. So you're going to give him more and more and more. In fact, what happens when the wudu, when, the, when our wudu places, when, uh, when the, uh, too many people start using it and you need it, it needs an upgrade because the water is too slow for the amount of people, what do you do? You, you, get a, you get a thicker, uh, you know, uh, pipes and, and a system, right? If your electricity is too, then you get the three-phase special industrial electric, you know, supply. That's what happens. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is opening his supply to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa Give, give, give. He's just the distributor and Allah is giving him. That's, this is not a fundraiser. This is not a fundraiser. We're not collecting here for the masjid. You may be. No, you're not. You're giving a break. Okay. Alhamdulillah. But keep this in mind. Giving, it's Allah who's giving. And Allah knows. It's not like I'm giving, He didn't find out. Allah knows every person that's giving. And He's the one who's giver. But how can you give? How does the Prophet ﷺ do this? After the Hawazin, Hunayn, the Prophet ﷺ freed 6,000 of their members that had been that had been enslaved 6,000 of them he set free emancipated why what were they worth they were worth 500 million dirhams 500 million dirhams 500,000 thousand dirhams that's what the Arabic says 500 million is dirhams what they're worth he gave them khalas there you go that's generosity once he gave Abbas عنه, so much gold that he couldn't carry it. He couldn't carry the amount that he was given. When it came to giving, he just gave. 
In fact, th this is the Prophet ﷺ and his reflection is on his ummah, on the great people of his ummah. So it, it says uh, uh, Sufyan ibn Uyayna, great hadith scholar, he once said to one of the students of Imam Abu Hanifa, Abu Hanifa was an extremely wealthy individual, merchant. He, he had people working, doing his cloth business, and he was teaching and studying, teaching. Once one of his students was approached by Sufyan ibn Uyayna, and he said, I can't believe how much your Imam, you know, Abu Hanifa gives us, right? He gives us so much that he makes us embarrassed. One is you go to somebody's house and you take them a pot of biryani and maybe something else. The other one is you go and you give them food for a hundred people. They're going to think, man, are you crazy? All this food, it's like I'm embarrassed. You know, what are we going to do with this? He used to give so many gifts to the ulama of the city. And Sufyan ibn Uyayna is one of them. And he's saying that to the student of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. And the student said, you're lucky. There's actually other people who he gives even more than that. How do you do that? How do you do that? The way you do that, the crux of all of this is reliance on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If your reliance and your trust is that Allah is the giver, He's given me this, He can give me more, He can give me much more. And the Prophet's reliance is unlike anybody's reliance. That's why He is the Ajwadun Nas, because He is the greatest in tawakkul. They go hand in hand. Without tawakkul, you can't give. Unless a person is light-minded and uh, not very sensible and people take advantage so that's the Prophet ﷺ. on one occasion 90,000 dirhams were brought to him and he just started giving and giving and giving until there was nothing left he just finished it all off completely this same reflection was on his family the way it worked is that in the beginning of the season all of his wives would be given Ummahatul Mu'mineen radiyallahu anhunna they would be given their supplies of grain and wheat or uh, barley and whatever else it was for several months for the season. Very few, in very few days, it would be gone. A mehman would come, a guest would come, the Prophet would call to his wives, anybody's got anything? And they would start giving and giving. By the end of it, there'd be nothing. And that's why for a number of days, there would be no fire in the house to cook anything. This is his jude. This is his sakhawa. This is his generosity because of his ultimate reliance on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He knew that he is spending on the creation of Allah, on the creatures, Allah's bondsmen. And it's Allah who's supplying him. He's acting just as the means. So with that reliance, he's giving to the people. Now, although we've kind of focused on wealth contribution, on money that he's giving and generosity in a monetary sense, that's not all that he used to give. You see, and it's not in this world that this, will, this is cons confined to. What the ulama mentioned is, لَمْ يَكْمُلْ وَصْفُ الْإِثَارِ إِلَّا فِي سَيِّدِ الْأَكْوَانِ That the quality of preferring others over oneself, ithar, the quality of pre preferring somebody else and giving somebody else advantage over yourself, this quality has never come complete in anybody but Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And you know when you'll see it complete? Every person on the day of judgment, including the prophets, will say nafsi nafsi, except Isa alayhi salam. 
Because in that story, everybody's saying nafsi, nafsi, Isa alayhi salam, he doesn't, in the narration, he doesn't say nafsi, nafsi, he says go to Muhammad He tells them where to go, to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam is the only one, wa huwa yaqul, ummati, ummati. That is Jude expressed even in the hereafter. In fact, he knows this. And that's why the special dua that every Prophet is given, this one special dua that is accepted, he has kept it for that time. So he's not just generous, but his planning is generous. He even plans in a generous manner. Now this is not just to revel at. This is for us to be inspired by. And not just for this majlis. But everything that our Maulana said as well, is not just for this majlis. It's to take out beyond this. Unfortunately, we go out and we lose it. We pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah give us endurance. Allah give us endurance. Allah keep these memories vivid in our minds. So that we can spread them to, to others and we can practice them. That's why this poet says what he says. But I'll go on to Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani. Somebody who dealt with the hadiths. Somebody who dealt with the hadiths of Bukhari and many others. He says that the reason why the Prophet ﷺ was like this is because sababu thalik anna nafsahu ashrafun nufus. The Prophet's soul was the most noble of souls. That's his soul. And his temperament was the most balanced of temperaments. See, generally what the ulama mention, like Imam Ghazali has written this, Mawlana Shabri Thani has mentioned this as well, Rahmatullahi Alayhi. They've mentioned that for a person to be perfect in character, they need to have perfection and an equilibrium in their knowledge, the way they use their knowledge and wisdom. If it, they use it excessively in the wrong way and they go beyond what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told them to and start going into realms that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not allowed, then that becomes problematic like the philosophers if they don't use it enough then of course there's a problem the second aspect is of anger the quality of anger is extremely important because that is what will make you stand up for your rights but if it becomes excessive then it make it, it causes you to swear at somebody it causes you to be aggressive it causes people to be tyrannical it causes uh, ethnic uh, cleansing and so on and so forth and if there's too less of it then a person is a coward it leads to, as we say, buzdili. Won't even stand up for his rights. Number three is desire. Shahwa. You need to have a certain level of shahwa in equilibrium. If there's too much of it, it leads to all the harams. Promiscuity, adultery, uh, pornography, etc., etc. And if there's too less of it, then it leads to one spouse not fulfilling the right of the other. So it needs to be perfect equilibrium. And what the ulama have discovered is that the one that's going to have the closest to the equilibrium will be the closest to Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, because the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was the most equal, had the greatest equilibrium in this regard. He was the most balanced in this regard, in every aspect. So now, Ibn Hajj al-Asqalani mentions that he was the most temperament in his behavior, in his attitude, in his in uh, in his in his temperament. He was absolutely moderate, and when it came to his nafs and soul and his self, which translates into the self. Is he was the most noble and most honorable and dignified in the way he conducted himself and the way he treated others. So that means that he would have the most excellent actions. 
Because actions are reflect reflection of our inner self, of our soul and our tabi'ah, our temperament. So if a person has the, uh, the, best the best inner self and the best temperament, then their character is going to be the best, their actions are going to be the best, their a'mal are going to be the best. And the Prophet ﷺ, when we talk about this, this uh, jude of his, this uh, uh, generosity, it was not just in wealth, it was in every aspect. Juduhu la yaqtasir ala it comprised of all the different types of generosity that you can even think of. For example, Badlul Ilm. That's the first thing he did, which is to expend his knowledge, to go and to teach people. To go and teach people. For those ulama who are sitting and not teaching, this is a, this is a reminder for us. For those of us who only teach for money and don't teach for free, this is also, this is also for all of us to give knowledge to, this is generosity, to go and teach people. Like for example, the story that's related about uh, one of the great uh, scholars that he gave this big bayan and this individual comes at the end of the bayan, at the end of the lecture and he missed it. But there was so much desire in his heart that he said, you know, I came from so far, the Sheikh gave the entire lecture to him again. Now we think, man, I'm tired. This is what you call expending your knowledge. And the Prophet ﷺ, wherever he was, he was expending his knowledge. Walmal, wealth, which we've already discussed. Wanafsahu, and of course, his own self in every aspect is willing to go out and in in what? It'amu ja'ihim, which means going and feeding feeding the hungry. Right? Just because you're doing one thing, it doesn't mean you can't go and feed the homeless. Number two, wa'di jahlihim, to go and try to give nasiha and give some admonition to the people who are ignorant, to go and help them to do some awl ma'roof and nahiyan al-munkar, to go and preach to them. Waqada'i hawa'ijihim, fulfill their needs. Somebody has a need, you go and fulfill them. Wattahammuli athqalihim, go and help them carry their burden. Somebody's had an issue, go and help them carry their burden, or their moving homes, or their psychological burdens, go and help them relieve them. وَكَانَ يُعْطِي عَطَاءً يَعْجِزُ عَنْهَا الْمُلُوكِ You know, kings with massive supplies. The Prophet ﷺ is described as being able to give in such a way that kings would be enfeebled. Kings would not be able to challenge him in that regard. In, his whole life was full of it. وَيَعِيشُ فِي نَفْسِهِ عَيْشَ الْفُقَرَاءِ Subhanallah. But in himself, he lived like a pauper. In his self, he lived like a poor person. That's the amazing thing. That he gave like a king, but he lived like a poor person. The fire would not be kindled in his home for months on end. What did they used to spend? What, what did they used to live their life by? How did they sustain? By the two black things. Kajur, your dates and your water. That's how they, they used to survive for a number of days. Let's try that for a day. And He's the same one who gives like a king, but he puts a, stomach on, he puts a stone on his stomach. He ties two stones on his stomach. 
He is the same one when his daughter came to him complaining about her hands. And some slaves had come. She needed somebody to help. Can I have a slave? And you know what the Prophet ﷺ told her? He said, Ask assistance through La ilaha illallah and Subhanallah and Alhamdulillah. That's where we get your Tasbihat al Fatimiyah from 33 times, 33 times, 34 times. Do it before you go to sleep. He told her to use that and that will help you. He didn't give her a slave. Now, in the hadith, what it mentions, to finish it off, what the hadith mentions is, why is the person, why is Ibn Abbas explaining? He first said, Kana ajwad nas. Understandable. He was the most, uh, he, uh, he, he was the most uh, um, generous among people. So first he said, he's the most generous among everybody. Now then to further discuss that, he said he was more generous than the rain. What does that mean? See, rain, it's very general. It's universal. It's everywhere. So the, what does the rain do? The rain, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions many times a parable in the Quran, He says Allah sends down the rain and it enlivens the ground after its desolation. There was an area that was totally desolate. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends the rain and it becomes living and fresh and green again. That is what the rain is doing. And look at what Ibn Abbas is most probably had in his mind. The Prophet ﷺ with his knowledge, he is expending it to enliven the hearts of people. So these hearts become live. Because the Prophet ﷺ said that the one who does dhikr of Allah and the one who doesn't is like the difference between a person who's living and a person who's dead. So he's enlivening the souls just like this rain is enlivening the desolate lands. Desolate souls are being enlivened. However, there's a difference. This is not a complete parallel. There's a difference. And the difference is, is that the rain stops and starts. The rain is not perpetual. Whereas the Jude of the Prophet ﷺ is perpetual. Even though he's gone now from this world, you can feel his generosity because we are all living examples of his generosity. That we're sitting in a masjid today. And his Jude will be on the day of judgment and will be for anybody who's in Jannah forever. His Jude is, his, his generosity is perpetual and eternal because that is what the generosity is what we are benefiting from today. And inshallah Allah send us to Jannah, which will be forever. And that is where we will be. That is, that, that, that is the expression of his generosity. So the rain stops and starts, but the Jude of the Prophet doesn't. Then, the, then he said, Ajwadun Nas, the most uh, uh, generous among people. Then he said, in Ramadan, because Ramadan, closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because his generosity is based on tawakkul, he feels closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Ramadan because of the special state of fasting and the barakat in Ramadan and the shaitans being away as we know. There's a special state in Ramadan. He's even more generous. And then he's even more generous specifically in Ramadan in the time when Jibreel is with him. Why? Because Why? Because at that time you have the most noble of angels of the Rahman, the most merciful one coming to the most noble of creation with the most noble of speech from the most noble of speakers in the most noble of times. So all of this nobility 
and this fadl comes together, then what is going to happen to Rasulullah sallallahu Ya Allah, we miss Rasulullah. We weren't alive at the time. But yet we can still feel that the Prophet ﷺ said, a group will come that have never seen me. He said many things about people who will come later, who've never seen me, but they, are, they love ashaddu ubban li. They have great love for us. They have great love for me. And it would have been a challenge. We thank Allah for wherever He's kept us as long as He gives us His love. That's the main thing. Because if you're time in Rasulullah ﷺ and we didn't get the love then, that would have been a curse. So we thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because Allah's wisdom supersedes everything. Allah knows when the best time for us and we just thank Him. Finally, one aspect of this. You see, what's happening is, it says in the hadith, this is one final point, that it says in the hadith that the Prophet ﷺ was the most generous when there was Jibreel salam. Where's Jibreel salam coming from? What is he bringing? He's coming from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What is this? This is pious company. This is pious company where noble things are being, where the noble Quran is being reviewed. That is why the ulama mentioned from this hadith, what you can say is that pious company is beneficial. So for us to sit in pious company, inshallah, like this one, among pious individuals. So what the ulama have mentioned is that just like the Prophet ﷺ is also benefiting as mentioned in this hadith, from company of, Isa, of uh, Jibreel alayhi salam, we will benefit from the company of the pious. Jibreel alayhi salam is not going to come to us and sit with us. It's possible, but he doesn't generally do that. We have to be with the ones of Allah. Now look at this. I'll just give you an example of some of the greatest ulama. Imam Malik, rahimahullah, it's mentioned that despite his great knowledge and everything, he would go and visit Muhammad ibn al-Munkadir who was known to be a wali of Allah and he would benefit from him. He would go and sit in his company. Ajeeb. Not only that, Ahmad ibn Hanbal ibn Ma'in, two of the greatest muhaddithin, right? Imams. Yahya ibn Ma'in, Ahmad ibn Hanbal They would go frequently and visit Ma'roof al-Karhi and you know, Ma'ruf Karhi, وَلَمْ يَكُنْ فِي عِلْمِ الظَّاهِرِ بِمَنْزِلَتِهِمَا When it comes to sciences, he was not of their stage, but when it came to the Batin and to Ruhaniya, he was higher and they would go and benefit from him. Amazing. Not only that, وَكَانَ الْإِمَامُ الشَّافِعِي Imam Shafi'i rahimahullah كَانَ يَجْلِسْ بَيْنَ يَدَيْ شَيْبَانَ الرَّاعِي He would go and sit in front of Shayban the shepherd, because of his state, he would go and sit in front of him. Just like a child sits in front of his teacher with full discipline in front of his teacher. That's how Imam Shafi'i used to sit in front of Shayban al-Ra'i. Imam Ghazali mentions in the Ihya, after quoting some of this, he says the only problem is that if you don't have anybody like that, then at least you can read their books, read their ahwal, read their stories, and that will be of benefit to you. You take the best that you have amongst your midst. No, mid, your midst, nobody's perfect. But you see somebody that reminds you of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, hold on to them and take benefit from this. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us comprehensive jud and sakha and generosity as he gave to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And thus, 
We've expanded our understanding of Sakha and inshallah we can expand it in a similar way. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us tawfiq. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make his obedience beloved to our hearts. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make his disobedience ugly and repugnant in our hearts. And may Allah make the best of our days the day that we stand in front of him. Wa akhiru da'wana alhamdulillah.